Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. One of the things you get to do as a pastor is officiate weddings uh, periodically, and uh, I know at a wedding there is all kinds of expectations. Expectations are really rather high, and uh, I know that in the course of the time, someone's going to be disappointed because those expectations are way too high. So as a pastor, I try at the rehearsal to sit the family down and all the wedding party down and and say, look, let me give you a little perspective. At the end of the day tomorrow, our goal together is to get this man and woman married. And it won't matter if uh, some of the details don't go exactly right or uh, how any one of you look during the service. Or if someone stumbles and falls over or, or uh, if they stumble on words. Because we're going to keep the goal in mind and unite this man and this woman in a marriage. And we'll accomplish that goal together. A marriage is a big celebration most of the time. Vows of commitment are exchanged. And, uh, but marriage, as it said in that video clip, is where the adventure begins. The marriage is the daily fulfillment of those vows. All those things said in good faith now have to be put into practice. I can remember at that time the wedding of the century of of, uh, Lady Diana Spencer and and Charles, the Prince of Wales. It was July 1981. Diana and I had been married for about a year and a half at that time, and we were in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, at the university there, going through training with Campus Crusade for Christ. And this big royal wedding was about to happen, and none of us had TVs. We were just living temporarily. And so uh, several of the ladies, Dinah including uh, in that group, went and checked into a hotel for the night <laughs> so they could get up early and watch the wedding live. I mean, nothing had been seen like this in decades, and certainly not in color, uh, and so they did that, and, and that whole part of where the archbishop, after the vows have already been taken, I mean, you can see so much if you look at that, that service now. Um, and he says, this is the stuff that fairy tales are made of. But marriage begins the adventure after that. Now, history has shown us that that marriage certainly was really no fairy tale, The story of years of unfaithfulness to the vows that they made that day has become famous, even though they made those vows on such a grand scale. It's hard to maintain a marriage when one or both of the people are unfaithful to the very vows that they collected their family and friends to witness. It's hard to maintain that. There's times when I'm uh, meeting with a couple, uh, they're going maybe through hard things in their marriage, and Sometimes I just take them back to their wedding day. Say, what did you promise this person? What did you promise her on that day? What did you promise him on that day? Let's look at how you're not fulfilling those promises that you made. Because words are important. Vows are important words that we exchange. I mean, we gather people together. We gather our family and friends and say, come see what I'm going to say and the commitment I'm about to make. We give those words and we receive those words 
on faith. We don't know what that person really is going to be like 10 years later or when they get to midlife or there's hardships in life, but we make vows to them on faith. Last week, I talked about this concept of faith, uh, first in a broad sense, and then a biblical faith of what it is. I shared with you that faith had three characteristics. Faith was first relational trust. It is a transfer of trust to another person. I illustrated that we do that all the time. When we drive a car, we get on an airplane, or we follow a doctor's instruction. We are trusting them and in uh, fulfilling that. It's, those things become a demonstration of faith because faith, if it's real, must be demonstrated. It must lead to some sort of action that's visible to someone else as an expression of our trust to them. And the third point I tried to make about faith is that it positions us to be the beneficiary in the relationship. As we are faithful and we see them be faithful, we experience the benefits of that relationship that we have with them. We do it every day, very commonly in our life. I ended last week with talking about uh, faith being our response to God's invitation to have a relationship with him through Christ. I compared that response and exchange in that initial step of the relationship to wedding vows, the commitment that one person makes to another to have a unique relationship with them. And then the adventure begins. Words are important. Wedding vows are important words. They promise things. They set expectations. They stir us to action. We give them and receive them in faith. On my wedding day in uh, uh, December 1979, we exchanged vows. We wrote our vows to each other so they expressed truly our love for one another and our heart for one another. After that, from that day on, everything changed in my life. I didn't have to go to a different house when Diane and I had gone out for an evening. We planned our future together. I deferred to her and she deferred to me on decisions. We both were involved in making major financial decisions or making major purchases. It wasn't just what I wanted. We conferred. Oh, she realized that she couldn't skip meals in order to save money to buy a new pair of shoes. I realized within six months that my entire wardrobe had changed. <laughs> Apparently, I had had a problem for years of selecting my own clothes. <laughs> Things changed. How we spent our time changed. We spent as much time as we could in our relationship and cultivating our relationship. I watched movies that I really didn't care to watch. She watched movies she didn't care to watch because we would be together. Our friends would get uh, complain that we weren't spending as much time with them and that our attention was distracted. Things changed in, uh, for me and that we enjoyed an intimacy together uniquely. Our vocabulary changed. We didn't talk about my stuff or her stuff. We talked about our stuff. It was our time. It was our money. 
I changed, and I gladly did that. I gave up rights, and I changed opinions because I wanted to please the one I loved, the one I had made a commitment to. I wanted to promote the ongoing development of that relationship. I guarded against things that would would take away or distract from that relationship. I did the things to cultivate our marriage, not because she demanded them or manipulated them out of me. I did it because I wanted to do them. Love compelled me to do those things. Now, during the last 34 years, we've certainly have gone through a lot of challenging things. Financial hardships and near-death experiences with almost each of our children, changes in, in vocation, changes in location, dark nights of the soul, intense fights uh, between our strong self-wills, But we made a vow, and we can't get past those words. So why wasn't that true in my relationship with Christ when I first came to him? I trusted Christ, as I said last week, when I was 16 years old. I called out to God and said, if you're really there, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to forgive my sins. I want to follow you. And I did see some early changes, particularly in regards to attitude that I would express. I I tended to be a person with a pretty short fuse. It seemed like I lived on the edge of frustration. So anger was probably the most emotion, consistent emotion that came out of me in situations. And I began to see that change, that anger dissipate and live in a less less frustrating life. But all of a sudden... I realized I really wasn't cultivating this relationship with God that I just committed to. I kind of treated him like a tag team wrestling partner, okay? When I needed help, I called upon him and said, you better get in here and fix this mess that I just made. And as soon as he kind of sorted it out and I got through, I said, I'm back in. I got it from here, Okay? I, was, I am a pretty self-reliant person. I knew I was smart enough and had skills and abilities and smart enough to get through a day in a given situation. I didn't rely on my parents for very much, and so I certainly just transferred that over to God and didn't rely upon him for very much. Well, what was it that happened there? I'd started out so well by an act of faith trusting him to be my Savior, to be my Lord, but I'd slip back into self-effort in living my life. I'd feel guilty about the the bad things that I do for sure. And I would turn over a new leaf and I would say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be a better person. I realized in the course of time I could be good for three days. That was it. If I didn't fall off the wagon somewhere in the three days, by day three, I was done. I'd turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do better. I'm going to make better choices. I'm going to do right things. I'm going to quit doing these kinds of things. And I would do it in the power of my flesh and self-effort. And then temptation would come in. And I would just take a little step toward it. And all of a sudden, I found myself out of fellowship with God again. My spiritual life was best characterized by being on a roller coaster. There were spiritual highs where I would get emotional and and call out to God and plead with him and then crashing spiritual lows. 
when I was seeped in self-effort. I was frustrated and defeated in my spiritual life. I had started out so well with such good intent. I made a vow to him, but I couldn't fulfill it. For five years, I was kind of in that pattern of this spiritual roller coaster going every which way. I couldn't fulfill the vow that I'd made. All those prayers where I told God that I would do better, I would be better, were just lies because I couldn't. The further I drifted from God, the more uh, it was crushing or the worse I felt afterward realizing how much I had violated my relationship with God. I went to church occasionally, but not very much. I didn't read the Bible very much. I didn't do things that maybe if someone knew how to cultivate a relationship with God, they might do. Now, the last two years of that five-year period of time, I was in a Bible study weekly, though. I did read the Bible. I talked about it with, with friends in the fraternity house. But I just couldn't live up to it. It was this up-and-down spiritual experience. I was unfaithful to the commitment that I had made God to follow him. And his word promised that he would be faithful to me in spite of my unfaithfulness. He would still be there. He would still care. He would still love. Well, how is it that I started out so well but ended up so frustrated in my relationship with God? As I said last week, faith puts us into position to benefit from our relationship with God and to benefit by the fulfillment of his promises that he made us. But the reality was I wasn't living daily by faith. I didn't know how. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what that looked like. I failed to trust God, and so I took control of my own life. How is it I could slip back into a pattern of self-effort after rejecting that concept that it would ever make me right with God when I was 16? Well, let's go back to the wedding metaphor for a little bit. Imagine with me that we are gathered here for a wedding service today. The groom is Jesus himself, and you are the one he is going to make a commitment to. I'm going to pull from a number of passages of Scripture and and describe to you the vows, the commitment that he's making to you in this relationship. Jesus looks at you, and he promises to love you unconditionally. He promises to love you every day, all day long, independent of your response to him. He promises to protect you, protect you from outside influences and the enemy of your soul. Nothing will be able to get to you that does not pass by him first. He promises to provide for you, not just your daily bread so you can get along, but to give you overly, abundantly beyond all that you ask or even think. He promises to sanctify you, to set you apart from others for himself. He promises to cleanse you, to wash you clean from the stain of sin and unrighteousness. He promises to actively be at work within you to prepare you to be with him in glory. 
He promises to comfort you in your distress, to never leave you or forsake you in any circumstance, to sacrifice himself for you. He says, I will be faithful to you even if you're unfaithful to me because I cannot deny my own character. My character is faithfulness. He pledges that day to pray for you, to give you peace, not as the world gives, but as only he can give, to never stop working on your behalf until he achieves the fullness of his image in you. He promises to guide you and be with you in every circumstance, to empower you, to speak up for you. Even if the devil himself were to speak against you, he will stand with you. He would close those vows, not saying, until death do us part. But he would quote himself in this verse in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's what he'd say to you as he stood there and looked at you face to face and says, let's have a relationship together. You know, what could you say back to that? What could you do? What would be the right words to say back to him in light of all that he committed and just pledged to you? Well, he'd want us to express our trust to him, to say that we have no other plan in our life. He'd want us to say, I think this, you are my only hope. You are my only hope to become the person I was created to be. Our tendency would be to go on and say more, okay? But I think he'd say, that's enough. Stop, stop, stop right there. Because we would go on and say, look, I will faithfully follow you all the days of my life. I will pray to you. I will be totally dependent upon you. I'll serve you with good works. I'll give funds uh, toward the things that are important to you. I will honor you with my obedience. But he knows that all those things that we add, that we're going to violate. We're going to break those very vows that we make toward him. We bring nothing good into the relationship And there's nothing good that we can add to it that will bring it value. Except he says one thing. The only thing we can bring into this relationship that will please him is our faith. Remember Hebrews 11, 6? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We have to have faith. It's the only thing we bring into this relationship. It's our response to him and his character and who he is. It's our response of faith. And faith gets credit to us as righteousness. Faith positions us to be a beneficiary in our relationship with him. He wants us to focus our faith on him and his words. That they are truer than what we experience. They're truer than anything we see or feel or touch or taste in this life. His words are true to us. Believe in them. 
Faith is the only thing we bring. It's the only logical response, as it were, to what he vows and promises to us. But as I said last week, biblical faith requires action, right? It must be demonstrated. So how do we demonstrate a faith that would please God? We started this relationship with him by faith, and we're supposed to cultivate it by faith. We're supposed to exercise our faith in him on a regular basis so he sees it. So what is in actions that can please him? Well, I prayed and searched scripture and studied and thought and interacted with others, and I came up with a simple formula. Acts of faith that you can do, if you will do, they will demonstrate daily faith in God. They will demonstrate that you are trusting him. You may want to write these down, okay? Just three. I'll give you just three. A simple formula for you to express faith in God. First is spend time with him in conversation, daily conversation. Prayer and reading the Bible, right? You might use the 50-50 principle. If you spend however much time you spend, divide half of it into prayer and half of it into reading the Bible. We provide the voyage here at Grace where you can use that as a beginning point to read the Bible and pray. Pray daily. Pray regularly. Read the Bible regularly is the first step of the formula. Secondly, it's to give. It's to give 10% of your income. I know we don't like to hear that, but look, giving our tithe allows us to express our faith in him, that we trust him to live off the 90%. And the third thing, simple formula, get involved in church activities, okay? Do things, engage with other people, Engage in Bible study, get busy serving, do all this sort of stuff. That will show that you have faith in God. It's a simple formula. We could follow this. We actually probably already have heard it. Something wrong with that, isn't it? Very wrong. So I want you to scratch those things out. There we go. There's no magic formula to cultivate a relationship with God. We long for formulas, don't we? We long to have a list of things we should do or don't do that we will know we can compare ourselves and say, I am living by faith. There was a group of people in the New Testament era that did that. They were called Pharisees. And and these are kind of the, the villains in the New Testament, as it were, in their stories with Jesus. But in many ways, they started out with very good intent. They were uh, people who wanted to demonstrate that they believed God and that their day, in their daily life, they cared deeply about the things of God. They understood that true faith had to be demonstrated, so they made lists list of things they should do and things they shouldn't do. They checked their lives regularly against those lists and said, I'm living up to it, or boy, they're not. 
We all like simple formulas. Now, their lists weren't some crazy ideas or whatever. They were based on their understanding and interpretation of the sacred uh, writings that we call the Old Testament. They defended their interpretation of that, their faith demonstration of that, passionately. They argued with one another about what should be on the list and not on the list. They argued with Jesus about his new interpretations of these sacred texts. We love formulas. We love to break it down into its parts and then just do the parts and think they add up to what we're supposed to do. Formulas make the complicated simple, and they make the ambiguous tangible. We long to discover God's secret formula for living by faith. Paul wrote to a group of people in Galatia. It's called the Book of Galatians. Uh, You can write down the reference and refer to it later. But he confronts this group of people because they started out so well with God. They had faith in God. They understood. They heard the gospel preached that Jesus was crucified for their sins. They believed in faith. They put their trust in him. They started out very, very well. But somewhere along the way, they began to trade that daily faith for a list, doing things and doing the right things in order to be justified by God, in order to please God. And he says, you foolish Galatians, you started out so well. Who has bewitched you? Why is it you think that you received the Spirit by faith and now you can can maintain him with, with following the law, the list? It's so easy to slip back into self effort to please God, but it's foolishness on his part. So the question remains, I'm not letting myself off the hook. How do we demonstrate faith in our daily life? Well, at this point when I was preparing this, and especially since last Sunday I committed myself to this direction, I started looking. And you know what? There's lots of lists in the Bible. Even in the New Testament, the error of grace uh, for people There's things we should do and shouldn't do that would express faith in a tangible kind of way. There's there's many examples of people who chose to live by faith that I could hold up to you and say, follow this example, incorporate these things into your life, and you will live a life of faith. And you'll leave with your list, and you'll go and try to do it and find out that you can't, that you fail again that you break the commitment, the very commitments that you make. So how do we do it? How do we cultivate a relationship with God? How do we live by faith? Well, let's start with what, uh, what would motivate us to put our faith into action. Let's start with what is at the top of God's list. In Matthew 22, Uh, Jesus is asked a question by one of the teachers of the law, one of the experts in it. And he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
You have to be in a relationship to love someone. A wedding day is a declaration of love. The vows that we exchange are expressions of love. A marriage is living out that decoration on a daily basis. It's living out love. There's a lot of things we are instructed to do in the Bible, list of things we should and shouldn't do. Things like having a, a regular time of talking with God, of praying consistently, of engaging with others in worship and, and prayer and fellowship and correction, to do Bible study and to do it together so that we stir one another to love and good deeds, to action. It even tells us to give financially, invest in his kingdom. But even if we do these things devoid of a love for God, they don't amount to anything. They fail the test to be expressions of daily faith. Therefore, they don't please him. Listen to, uh, uh, as I read, part of a, a very familiar chapter to you, one that's read at many weddings, may well have been read at your wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, the first part says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and of knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Did you hear the list in there? Speaking in tongues, unique gift. The gift of prophecy to be able to preach or teach to others. Being able to fathom the mysteries and knowledge of God, to understand God's word and open it up to people so they can understand it too. To have faith that even could move mountains. To give all your possessions to the poor. To serve and give yourself over to hardship in service to his kingdom. If you do all those things devoid of love, it amounts to nothing. It gains us nothing. We are nothing then. These three things remain, that chapter ends with, faith, hope, and love. Looking at it another way, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John, the apostle John is describing this glorious vision that he has of Jesus in the last days and what he's doing. And in it, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in different cities. To the church of Ephesus, one that he praises in the beginning and says, look, I know your good deeds. I know all the acts of faith that you're doing on my behalf. I know that you're a people who scrutinize what you hear. And when someone says, this is what God says, you're going to check it out with the rest of Scripture. I know you have a passion for me. You persevered through so much. But what did he tell them they lost? Verse 4, it says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He didn't say quit doing the things. He said do them out of love. A loveless marriage doesn't work very well. Because I love Diana, I do all sorts of things for her and toward her. It breaks my heart when even when I don't have any ill intent, my words or my actions hurt her. I get lonely when I allow my attention to drift to other things apart from her. I don't do good things in our marriage relationship because they're on some sort of list that married people are supposed to do. I do them out of love. Love compels me to action. It drives me to show her that I love her. A loveless marriage doesn't work. A loveless relationship with God doesn't work either. Love is how and why faith gets demonstrated in our daily life toward God. Our love for him should compel us to do, to act, to demonstrate, to demonstrate faith. So, yes, I want to read my Bible. So, yes, I do want to pray. Yes, I want to give to the cause of the kingdom of God. Yes, I want to serve others in his name. I want to be around other people in relationship who want to love God that way. I want someone close enough in my life that will say, don't fake it, Ray Anderson. Love God for real. Don't settle for pretend. I wind up doing all those things as best I can, but out of a totally different motivation, a motivation of love. One of the privileges I have of being a pastor here at this church is to be an under-shepherd of this flock. I know many of you. I know your desire to love God and to please him and how you live. I know others that struggle with that. Let's give ourselves anew to the quest of pursuing a love relationship with God this year. Let's get off the treadmill of thinking that we have to earn his love. Let's quit nagging him to get our own way in the relationship and trust him to follow his way through our circumstances. Let's quit playing on the peripheral of relationships with one another and engage with one another in a deep and meaningful way. Let's encourage and stir one another to love in good deeds. That's what he asked us to do together. Not forsaking the, the assembling together of being together, but to stir one another all the more until he comes gets us. And how do we cultivate a love relationship with God? Well, the Bible gives us a clue on that one too. In each of his letters, Paul writes, he includes a part of the the structure of, of those epistles, those letters, a prayer. In Philippians 1.9, he, he gives a prayer to the Philippian church, a prayer about love abounding. 
He says this, and this I pray that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you see it there? That your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and depth of insight. To know God is to love God. You can't love him more if you don't know him more. If your knowledge of him is not increasing over time, that's why you read the scripture, to know him. That's why you interact with other people who know it better than you so that they would fill in the gaps of your knowledge where you're taking it on faith and faith becomes, fills in those gaps between what you know about God and what you don't know about him. And that gap closes with knowledge, knowing who he is, his character, depth of insight. It's experiencing life with God in relationship. I experience life in relationship with Diana. I know her better now than I ever have. And I love her more as a result of that. We have 34 years of direct history together. We know we can get through a hard time if we stick together in similar ways. In these years that I've walked with God, I've learned to trust him. I've seen his character, that he is faithful and true, that he's going to love me no matter what, that he promises never to leave me or forsake me. And I take him at his his word as an act of faith and trust, and my love for him grows. What if this fall season... We committed ourselves not to just a bunch of doing, but to a whole lot of loving, a lot of loving of God and cultivating that love. And as he said in the second commandment, to love one another. The fall season is a new new season for us. It's an opportunity that we can seize and settle into a new routine and include things that are going to help us cultivate that love relationship with him. What if in December, when we come back together at that point in time to celebrate the birth of Jesus, that we looked over these four months and found out that we love God more? that we're more deeply in love with him and care about the things that are his and care about the people that are his than we do today. Won't that be a great day of worship in December? Let's work toward that. We might find out in the next four months that we'll do lots of acts of faith. We'll demonstrate our faith. We'll live it out daily. They may show as us reading the Bible more or spending more time in prayer. It may find out, and to our surprise, that we actually gave more, that we connected more deeply with other people that wanted to love him too, that we engaged in conversation with our non-believing friends not to convince them, but to tell them about the love that God has for them. 
What if we did that in the next four months? We took this opportunity to love him more. We'll find out the checklist is not some obligation that we have to do, but we do those things out of love for God. Our daily faith becomes motivated by love, and the demonstration of that faith becomes a whole lot easier than following some list. Let's pray that we would fall in love with God more deeply in these next four months. Join me in that prayer. Father, you're a great God, and you are the lover of our soul. We can't begin to respond to all the the promises that you've made us in, in this love relationship you want to have with us. Lord Jesus, you are our only hope. So would you stir our hearts to love you? Would you help us to know you better in these months than we do right now? Would you help us to have depth of insight and experience with you that would cause us to love our God more? Would you help the people of grace be the people who love God? In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.